Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. If you couldn't tell from all the news coverage you've probably seen and heard about in the last week, wildfire season has roared into New Mexico. It has been a long day filled with some terrifying moments for people living in and near the bosque north of Berlin. What's being called the Big Hole Fire has scorched parts of the bosque. The smoke from this fire can be seen from miles away, and every few minutes we'll have these winds pick up, fanning those flames and causing those big black plumes of smoke. We live in a desert where there are dry conditions, high winds, and a lot of vegetation to burn through in parts of the state, all contributing to dangerous conditions when a fire sparks. Right now, the Hermit's Peak fire continues to burn. This one in the Santa Fe National Forest, northwest of Las Vegas. That fire started as a prescribed burn last week and quickly got out of control again because of those winds. Historically, we've looked at May, June to be the so-called active or peak fire danger months. But here we are in mid-April, and there's already been a ton of activity out there. Yeah, very high winds, particularly in the Ruidoso area, upwards of 60 to 90 mile an hour gusts on Tuesday, the first day of the McBride fire. That really fueled the spread of that fire in the southeast part of the state. We began with breaking news, two fires in the Ruidoso area. This this one huge. It is east of the links at Sierra Blanca Golf Course. You can see a home completely engulfed. Neighbors tell us it is moving and growing fast. People in Rudo, so north of the high school, are being told to evacuate immediately. Multiple structures have already been lost. Our own chief meteorologist Grant Hosterud says April is historically the windiest month of the year for New Mexico. State police say at least two people, an elderly couple, was found dead in the McBride fire in the Riodoso area where people were under evacuation orders at the time. Families have been displaced, homes lost. Local state and federal officials have been working together to fight the fires and get things under control. On the line with us today is Wendy Mason. She's the Wildfire Prevention and Communications Coordinator for the New Mexico Forestry Division. Wendy, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. So first, Wendy, usually, you know, I've heard people say this, that May, June is kind of our peak fire danger season or the months that they look at for that. And we're not even in May yet. So what do you see contributing to the fire? that we've already seen spark across the state here in mid-April? Well, we have seen a warming climate. Um, Every year it changes. Our seasons have changed. Uh, You know, we had a good, decent monsoon and then we dried out over the winter. But after that monsoon, we had a, a lot of fine fuel growth. So like grasses. So you had those grasses dried out over the winter. We had a little bit more moisture kind of off and on throughout the winter. The lower elevations didn't really get a whole lot of moisture. But again, those fine fuels, which only takes a little bit of water for them to grow, started growing again. And now we're dry. You know, just since uh, January 1st, we've had 134 fires and About 30,000 acres have burned on state and private land. So that's not including federal lands, which would include some of the, you know, like the Hermit's Peak fire that's burning right now. There isn't a fire season anymore. And not just here in New Mexico, but all across the West and other parts of the United States, we are seeing big changes. And it's something that we prepare for, but all the training in the world can't necessarily, you know, you can't fight climate change. 
how remarkable has this last two week stretch been for you? I mean, it, it just seems like that we hit April 1st and things just started going bonkers. It wasn't just the dry conditions, but the winds, which we get, as you said, every year at this time. Um, but the winds we had this week were really extreme, 90 miles per hour in Nogal Canyon, you know, and then 80 miles per hour in the Ridoso area. When it gets to that point, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can have all the defensible space and mitigation work uh, on the ground, which the Rio Doso area has a lot of it. Um, residents there are very vigilant about defensible space and, and uh, keeping their properties cleared. But when you get winds like that, the fire isn't necessarily traveling across the ground. It's crowning in the treetops. It's traveling across the tops of the trees and then, you know, it's hitting roofs and things like that. And then you have the embers from the fire, which are out in front with that wind. So they are sparking spot fires ahead of the front. It was really a remarkable situation that took place uh, on Tuesday when um, the fire started down South. That McBride fire just really just exploded. Uh, I it mean, did. We're, we're talking about within an hour, you know, seemingly a, at least a thousand acres. Um, when mm-hmm. something like that happens so fast, what is really the, the first move for locals in that area? If you see it, obviously it's time to get out. You got to be signed up for any reverse 911 systems, uh, evacuation or emergency notification systems where you live in a wildland urban interface like that, where you are in the trees um, but even if you are living in the grasslands of New Mexico, in the woodlands, pinyon, juniper woodlands, the fires can travel very, very quickly through fine fuels like grasses. Um, down in southern New Mexico, especially in eastern, all along eastern New Mexico, um, we have a lot of those areas. And uh, so it's not just the forests that you have to worry about. A fire can be upon you in an instant. That's why I say you always need to be ready to go on a moment's notice. We know these wildfires aren't something that just the local fire department obviously can handle. And the McBride fire, for example, was taken over by a type one incident command. Can you explain for us like what exactly that means? There are different levels of incident management teams. They start at a type six which is a two-person team. Um, many times, uh, you know, those are the teams that will go out first at the first report of a fire, depending on what information they already have. A type one team is basically bringing in an entire city of people to manage and uh, take over operations of a major wildfire. When it gets to that point, to have a team of 700 to 1,000 people coming in, that is an extreme situation. That means fire activity is erratic and dangerous. You need more people, more resources on the ground um, with, you know, and that's what these teams bring in. It also allows for more air support, seven, eight, nine, ten air tankers rather than, you know, just a few helicopters or something like that dropping water. So each level starting at a type six and then it goes all the way up to a type one, depending on the fire activity. 
this may be a little bit broad, but um, I'm wondering in a sense of the most important things you consider when a new wildfire starts. Each of our district has highly trained firefighters that go out on initial attack. Um, but more often it is local fire departments who are responding first. And those are your volunteer fire departments, your municipal fire departments uh, that have a wildland unit. Um, like Albuquerque Fire Rescue, they have a wildland unit. The counties have wildland fire units. Rural areas really depend on volunteer fire departments. So when they are going out, say they get a smoke report, as soon as they get there, they assess the situation. If they can see it from where they are, as they're getting there, they can even uh, determine fire activity by, you know, looking at the smoke plume, um, knowing what the current weather conditions are, at that time, um, weather conditions obviously are, are critical. Then they have to determine who owns the land. So is it state? Is it private? Is it federal? Um, is it tribal? Property lines are so checkerboarded. If you if you ever saw the map, it is basically a checkerboard of, of ownership. You know, if it's on state or private land, then they contact the, the New Mexico Forestry Division. And then we go from there. And um, But we always know about any wildland fire that is taking place, no matter what the ownership is, because then we work with our partners, you know, whether it's federal, tribal, and um, to assist them in getting the resources that are necessary to take care of that fire. I'm assuming one of those things that they're sizing up is how close in proximity homes are to these fires. For instance, in the one in Rodoso, one of the first videos that we saw come into our news station was a home that looked to be within flames. What is sort of that first step that those local either volunteer or whoever is looking at that? What do they first do? Well, if it's if it's in an area like the fire in Rodoso, from what it sounds like, I haven't been able to get on the ground myself, but it, it was, you know, within a residential area, I believe. So, but if they can tell that the fire is going to be going towards, towards a home, then they're going to notify those people right away, but they're, and they're going to notify law enforcement. They're going to, you know, get a hold of uh, the village, you know, and, and um, what's unique about um, the village of Rio Doso, they also have their own forestry department. Um, So, uh, and then the county um, notifying them and then, you know, of course, determining land ownership or whatever, then they notify um, those people. So, um, but if they arrive on a scene, you know, because there are sometimes where a fire might start, a wildfire may start from a house fire. We get some weird ones. Let me tell you, you know, there are the uh, spontaneous combustion does happen. 90% of the time, nine out of 10 wildfires are human caused. And that could include not just people, but um, equipment like power lines. Um, it could be somebody welding on their fence. We have people who are in the agriculture industry and they're burning their fields and ditches and things like that. And um, a lot of times that can get away from them and, and we are called. Initial attack is most important because that is their first chance to stop the fire before or gets bigger or reaches any homes. But sometimes it's going to be moving too fast and you're going to have to 
call more people in. For folks that live in mountain communities, you know, they're not unfamiliar with the dangers of forest fires. We see high fire danger signs a lot, especially when things are really dry and windy, like you mentioned. And we've heard the term keeping your home fire ready. Can you tell us what it means to have like like a defensible space? The best thing to do is to start with what we call the the five foot zone around your house. And this is if you have decks, your vents around your house, your eaves, your roof, any landscaping that is right up against your home. But that little five foot area from the wall of your house out, make sure that you do not have firewood stacked up against the side of your house. I don't know how many times we tell people (laughs) not to do that. And it's difficult because when it's cold, you don't want to walk 10 feet away or 30 feet away from your house to get your firewood. We understand that. But there are things that you can do. Um, There are storage bins that are fire resistant or even fireproof where you can put your wood into that. So we recommend people research that kind of stuff, making sure your gutters and your eaves and crevices, indentations in your roof or anything are clear of uh, dead leaves and and pine needles. You know, especially if you're living in the trees, you're going to have lots of of debris like that. You need to do this all year long, you know, and make it a regular habit. Clearing away anything that is flammable, like lawn furniture, and then you can move out, you know, to ideally a hundred feet is the best defensible space that you can really work with. 30 feet minimum. You've got to consider fencing. Do you have wooden fencing? Clearing away those darn tumbleweeds and it also trimming low branches, things like that. If you have a property that's, you know, 10 acres or more, you can contact the forestry division, any of our six districts um, around the state and our timber management officers and our fire management officers can come out and assess your property and see what can be done. And it's just a matter of taking the initiative. Um, If you're unable to do it yourself, you know, you can get a hold of us and there are people that uh, can help. It's just a matter of, of reaching out to get that help. Communication is obviously key when these things spring up. You see these things play out in the, the first hours that crews are responding. How hard do you find it to get out that word? when these things are first breaking out? It can be difficult, especially if people don't have internet or or even a cell phone. There are people that don't even have a cell phone. But this is where local law enforcement comes into play. And they are a vital tool in going door to door, physically going door to door to try and, and get people out. Um, especially, you know, when you have, you know, elderly folks who may not have that technically savvy um, mindset, being in contact with your local emergency management um, agency is a good way to stay informed. If they know that you don't have those resources, potentially maybe they can let law enforcement know or or even reaching out to your to the local sheriff's department and say, hey, you know, I don't have this stuff. How will I be notified if something is happening? It really takes the effort of residents and, and even visitors to 
be aware of current conditions, what fire restrictions might be in place to have emergency numbers. About how these fires start, you know, everyone wants to know when they see it happening on the TV or see it happening in their communities, what was the cause of these fires? Can you talk a little bit about how investigators might determine causes of wildfires and is it easy or is it difficult to tell? Sometimes it can be very difficult, but many times the investigation, it doesn't come until well after the fire is out. So um, because it has to be safe and to be able to go in there and they can't, you know, have people on top of them. And and obviously you want the fire out so you can do a proper investigation. And there are, are many people who do that. We have a law enforcement officer who goes out for uh, the forestry division. Sometimes if, you know, if he's busy, we call in help from other agencies with uh, qualified investigators. There are so many different causes, especially with roadside fires. You might think, oh, somebody parked on tall grass or they flicked a cigarette out their window. That not, that's not necessarily the case. That's why we ask uh, people to keep their cars maintained because it could be a piece of metal or something like that from underneath a vehicle that scraped the ground. Dragging chains is, is a common one. We get that every single year. One season we had 13 fires along an interstate and it was from dragging chains. So as those chains are hitting the ground, it's causing a spark. Also debris that comes from exhaust can start a fire. There are particles that get built up in uh, exhaust systems, especially like on semi-trucks that can fly out and land on the side of the road and start a fire. Um, that's why many times they may not list a cause because they, they can't figure it out. You know, there's no obvious sign. Many times we just don't know. What does it mean for the rest of fire season that we've, we've already seen a very active start to April? What can we expect in terms of when things might calm down? And what do you think is ahead for the rest of the season, maybe? We never expect things to calm down until the monsoon comes. That is when our moisture levels build back up, not just when the rain comes, but as, as storms start moving in, it, it increases moisture in the atmosphere, um, which is extremely helpful. You know, this season, we may be seeing it right now. I mean, even in March, we had dozens of fires on state and private land all throughout March as well. They just didn't get big like the ones we're seeing th this week because our initial attack was very efficient and we didn't have the winds, you know, uh, as bad. We still had some red flag days though through March. So May and June coming up, depending on weather conditions, if it is hot and dry, um, we expect to continue to be busy, whether or not it will be extreme, don't know. Does it make you nervous heading into May and June like this? Maybe just a little bit, a little bit. I mean, you know, while we're prepared, we have hundreds of firefighters all across the state, every corner of the state. And, you know, while you can be as prepared as possible, there's always times like we're seeing this week where it's just not enough because, uh, you know, the fire's moving too fast. You need more help. So if we have to, we bring in help from other agencies from around the state or even out of state. The fire season is usually Southwest area, New Mexico, Arizona. It, it starts with us and then it starts moving, moving uh, West and Northwest. You know, we're going to have to see 
Um, we're going to be absolutely on alert. Um, we already have resources that we station throughout the state just for these more critical months, what's called pre-positioning. So we have crews available at a moment's notice. They're, they're stationed at our districts um, in addition to the firefighters who are already there. The best thing, you know, that residents and, and even visitors can do is, again, you know, be mindful of conditions. When it's windy, please do not burn. If you're traveling with uh, trailers or RVs, you know, make sure your chains are secured. Make sure that your spark arresters are in proper working order on like your ATVs, your chainsaws, equipment like that. It's just extremely important that we all are mindful of what we're doing. If there's anything that we're doing that could potentially cause a spark. Campfires too. Right now, I have a feeling that more restrictions are going to be going into place here pretty quickly. We've got higher fire danger postings already at most of the national forests in New Mexico that have come out this last week. So expect to see more of that and be aware of local restrictions that may not be posted. Sometimes they'll post it on their social media page and, and not on their website or something like that. So really, depending on where you live, you got to be mindful of what's going on in your area. The New Mexico Fire Information website is a good resource, nmfireinfo.com. Of course, we try and keep up with uh, fire information as, as quickly as possible and uh, get things posted on there. Thanks again to Wendy Mason with the State Forestry Division for taking the time to talk with us about this important issue. We'll have another episode for you next week. In the meantime, reach out. I'm at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com and gburknm on Twitter. I'm Chris McKee TV on Twitter and also email chris.mckee at krqe.com. We appreciate you listening and definitely stay safe out there.